0: Hi, I'm Ray Carr, along with Cindy Verbalen and Jeffrey Mark. We call this broadcast Hitting the Mark. This week's topic is Yarmie's Army. Is there anything during the heyday of Yarmie's Army that you would have liked to have done that you were unable to make happen? I would have loved to have sung, but the official singer for the group was Peter Marshall. How in the world can I compete with Peter Marshall? Uh, He he was recording albums at the time. The man has a gorgeous voice. He's ninety five. He still has a gorgeous voice. Wow! I'm a jazz singer. You know, I need jazz musicians there to sing with. He had orchestral tracks to sing to. I have those now, but back then I didn't have those kinds of things. I would have loved to have done more music with the Army's Army. Uh, Other than that. I was with them in Florida. I was with them in Las Vegas. I was with them in the desert. We, we just did tons of these shows all over the place. Uh, sometimes it was a little sad. Sometimes uh, the humor was backstage. We'll see if we can get this one through. The word itself is not nasty unless the connotation put to it. I'm in a dressing room putting on makeup with Jack Riley, Shelley Berman, Chuck McCann, Tom Poston, and I think Pat Harrington. We had two dressing rooms. We were, so we were split in half. It was the very first time I was appearing with the group. I thought, when we're putting on our makeup, I am going to hear like gems of show business. Instead, Tom Poston starts doing baseball trivia. And I'm sitting there, you know, Putting an expression on my face. In 1957, who had the most run batted in? How many times in the 1950s did the Yankees win the World Series? And I thought, all right, this is nerves. Some people, when they're nervous before a show, talk dirty, tell dirty jokes. Tom's thing is baseball trivia. The guys all liked baseball. All of us had spent major time in New York City. Baseball is a big deal in New York City. All right you know, five or 10 minutes, this will go away. This went on for about 20 minutes.
1: And it's <laughs> like, you know
0: what? I'm going to go next door to the other dressing room because this is getting boring. And I'd finished putting on mine. And I'm starting to walk out of the room. And Tom says, in 1965, who got the most balls in the face? And over my shoulder as I'm leaving, I looked up at him and I said, Liberace. <laughs> And Tom grabs me. Tom is a very tall man. I'm, I'm not very tall, with piercing baby blue eyes, looks at me. I can't use this word, but he called me a euphemism for a vagina. Liberace was the punchline to the joke. The whole 20 minutes had been a setup. To get to that punchline. And he thought that I stepped on his punchline on purpose. I had no idea where he was going or that it was a joke. It took Tom almost two years to forgive me. He really don't ever mess with the comedian's punchline, they will knife you to death if you do that. He Did honestly he believed, know? he honestly, no, he believed that I was being a smart aleck that I oh. knew what he was doing, knew the punchline and was trying to kill his laugh. I was trying to kill my boredom. And I thought I had something funny to say before I left. Yeah. I paid for that one long time. Tom finally forgave me when I told a joke one night. Uh, I forget what was going on, but the, the meeting was half of its normal size. So there weren't a whole lot of us there. And I told a joke that had been told to me by Jack Carter. And the joke is a woman goes into a pharmacy and says, I need some arsenic. And the pharmacist said, arsenic is a controlled substance. You need something from a doctor to get that. And she goes into her bag and pulls out a photo and says, this is a photo of my husband having sex with your wife. And the pharmacist said, oh, you have a prescription. (laughs) And Tom loved the joke and he said that was perfect, Jeff. Not mm-hmm. one word too many, not one word out of place. Tom felt that when I did comedy, I used too many words. I fumfered too much. I didn't just I didn't boil it down to as few he said, No, you've learned. Good for you. After that, Tom began to have a lot more respect for me because he saw that I was listening and learning. And once, once he saw the talent and the listening and the learning, he, he grew to have affection for me. Tom was uh, a very interesting man. Uh, you guys, I think you should know that he and Suzanne Plachette had done a Broadway show years and years and years before this. Suzanne's husband was also named Tom, Tommy. Tommy and uh, Tom's wife um, had died within weeks of each other. And going to each other's funerals, they reconnected and got married. And I called over there when I heard that Don Adams had died. I was also the guy who called everybody when one of us died to make arrangements. And I called Tom and Suzanne were living in a penthouse uh, on Wilshire Boulevard one of the very few places in LA that has skyscrapers, lo- you know, very tall apartment buildings. That's not a usual thing in Los Angeles, but they lived in the one area where that was true. So you had to go through a switchboard, like an old fashioned, you didn't call the house, you called the apartment building and the operator put you through to the apartment. And I called and I said, hey, Tom, hey, Suzanne, guess what? Don Adams died. And Tom said two words, not interested and hung up the phone. Tom, Tom did not suffer fools gladly at all. And I learned an awful lot from him, but I paid, paid the price. I really had to pay the price for that. Jeffrey, let me ask you about a few other people that were involved that I would like to know more about. One of those individuals was uh, Howard Morris and Jerry Goldsmith. Those are the two I'd like to know more about. Howie Morris let me say a few words about him. For those of you who don't know who he's, we're talking about here, Howie Morris became famous working with Sid Caesar. Uh, he, he was on your show of shows with Sid. He was on Caesar's Hour with Sid, along with Carl Reiner. They stayed with Sid Caesar all through the 50s and into the 60s doing specials with him. Howie then became a very sought-after character actor, cartoon voice man, and a sitcom director. He also got to be known in the 60s on the Andy Griffith show for playing Ernest T. Bass, the rock-throwing hillbilly who was always causing Andy trouble. And he directed the Dick Van Dyke show. He directed the Andy Griffith show. He, he did these things. Also the voice of Mr. Peebles on the Gilla Gorilla. Also the voice of Jughead on the Archie cartoons. So how he worked constantly. He was a five foot four dynamo and Howie and I were very, very, very close friends. Uh, Howie was of the Shelley Berman school of anger. He felt that no matter how famous he'd been, he hadn't become famous enough. No matter how much money he'd made, he hadn't made enough money in his later years as Howie got ill with several things. He felt that his comedy partners forgot him. And he was very bitter about it and I can tell you being in his house constantly uh, and these are people I knew and liked, but Sid Caesar never called him. Carl Reiner never called him. Um, Carl claimed it at the end. He did call if he did. I'm glad he did, but I wasn't there for that and how he never told me that he did. And, um, he resented. He resented that he felt like he had been forgotten at Howie's funeral. Howie didn't have a memorial service. He had a funeral. Uh, I was one of the speakers and I told this story. Sitting in Howie's bedroom on a chair, Howie was in bed. It was just more comfortable there. It was easier to visit with him there. And we're talking about nothing. you know, You're know. When you're visiting somebody who is chronically ill and kind of dying, you just want to fill their day with just fluff and he changes the subject he looks at me he says jeff i want to say something to you i said sure how what he said you know you're fat and i laughed he goes yeah i'm kidding no you're really really fat and i'm laughing some more no jeff i mean it i mean like you are incredibly fat and I'm almost falling off my chair at this because he's performing this for me. And I, I, he gets his laugh and he says, how do you get laid? I <laughs> fell off the chair. I told that story at his funeral. I got a solid minute of laughter from Andy Griffith and Aaron Spelling and Annette Fabre and uh, Sid, Sid didn't come, but... Uh, all the people who had been connected to him through the years were there, a house full of huge stars. I got such a big laugh that Gary Owens, another friend from the Army's Army, came up and shook my hand in front of it. Says, "Well done, young man." Um, it's 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 maybe not in very good taste to take a bow at someone's funeral, but how I would have been the first person to applaud to support me because he really loved me. I I like to ask, you know, why why didn't Sid come over or why didn't he call or anything? Sid Caesar was a very complicated man. And I knew Sid and I loved him. He wasn't funny sitting around a table. He was a very shy person. Sid had conquered his drug and alcohol problem. So we had that in common. We were both clean and sober. Sid, Sid, uh, a little longer than I was. But the damage Sid had done to his family, they did back to him. His kids were not loving children. His son was almost a danger to him. And his wife decided that she'd had enough of him and checked herself into a $20,000 a month place wow. like a, wow. like an assisted living place without him. So he had a, you know, spend that much money every month for her, never saw her. She never visited, just drained him of money. Uh, it was sad. I had a Passover Seder once. I think I've talked about this on the show before with Sid and his wife and Jack, at Jack Carter's house and a, a bunch of other celebrities. Uh, Sid had so little to say. He was so shy. He didn't want to talk about himself. And it was obvious that his wife kind of wore the pants in the family, maybe to make up for the years where he was out of control. But Sid Uh, Around the time that Howie was getting ill, Sid was becoming less and less ambulatory and had become a little agoraphobic, wasn't leaving the house very much. I had uh, an appointment to have lunch with Sid around this same time, and I was halfway there, and I just thought I better call him to remind him I was coming And he got on the phone with me. He said, call the police. My son is here. He has a gun. He's going through my drawers. He's doing this to me. I'm afraid. Get me help. Don't come here. He'll shoot you. Don't come. Now, I have no idea. He wasn't being funny. Was he in senility? Was that actually happening? Another time that I called Howard Storm and I said, uh, what do we do here? And Howard said, we mind our own business. This is how Sid's family operates. That's why Sid didn't come. This is Hitting the Mark. I am Cindy Verbalin with Ray Carr and our star, the Mark Jeffrey Mark.